0: Welcome
1: Welcome to to the the Better Better Call Daddy. Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe.
2: And advice that you didn't know that you needed.
1: Five stars. Five and a
2: half stars.
1: We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my
2: daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me.
1: Papa. Uh-huh. My dad is my hero. You'll
2: always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around.
1: Oh, boy.
2: Hey, hey, hey. I think I'm a pretty cool dude.
1: Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs.
2: Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. (laughs) Today, we're speaking to
1: a counselor who counsels the abuser. He meets with teens, their parents, and gives them both guidance. Elia Friedman, welcome. I was reading through that paper you sent me. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there.
0: Yeah. That article is the real deal. It's not, it's not a joke.
1: Yeah. So I would <laughs> love to just kick off the episode with you telling me kind of what your specialty is.
0: So first of all, my dream always was to be working with teens. So the primary population that I work with is adolescents, is teenagers. A certain sense been working with teens since I was one myself in various different capacities. I think the subset that you really want to hear the most about is that uh, I specialize in working with young men who have, uh, there's different ways we can say it, but let's say it in the blunt way and then we'll say it in the, in the more gentle way, which is a little bit harder, a little bit less clear. Young men who have molested. Other children, So we don't like the word perpetrator. We don't like the word offender. These are very criminal terms. They're very legal terms. They're very rough terms. But it's young men who have behaved inappropriately in a sexual manner with other young men or young women. And I, I stress that I work with those who are hurting others as opposed to victims. I have proper training in working with those who have hurt others. I have informal training in working with victims, which very much comes in handy when I've got someone who's experienced both, which is less common than people might think, which is, I'm sure, something that we should speak more about. But one thing which is definitely true is that everyone who's doing this is hurting in some way. There's definitely pain going on, et cetera. Um, So I work primarily with those young men who have hurt others. And the reason that we want to avoid terms like perpetrator, offender, molester, things like that.
1: Pedophile. um,
0: Uh, Right. So pedophile. Okay. So that that's even more. So let's, we'll get to that in one second. The reason that we don't want to use this kind of terminology is because once a young person brands himself that way, once he accepts that tag, it becomes, I don't want to say impossible, but extremely difficult to help him. We want to be working from a place of you're a person who's made a very big mistake. You're a person who's made some very poor decisions. You've allowed your pain or your confusion or your lack of connection or whatever it might be to drive you to very unhealthy behaviors. We need to understand how unhealthy they are. We understand how you got to that point. We understand the mis- you know the different terminologies, cognitive distortions, et cetera, that you've used in order to get to that point. Once we understand all that, and you understand that you're essentially good who just did something bad. You're a good person with something you shouldn't have done, something uh, that, that is bad. And we don't sugarcoat it. You did something bad, but you are good. And once you, the young man can accept that, from that place, he can heal.
1: That's truly if amazing.
0: Be- if you believe that you're bad, why would you even try? Right. I- I'd give up. <laughs> and like, if you, it's, you find a similar thing with addicts, this type of thought process of, I can't help it. There's no way I'm going to break it. I'm, I'm doomed. This is who I am. And then, okay, if that's who you are and there's nothing you can do about it, well, then you're, there's a very decent chance you might not do anything about it.
1: Okay, but let me bring something up here. How can going to therapy once a week, once every two weeks, once a month, even make a difference.
0: Okay. So you can ask that question in general about therapy, or you're asking specifically about this particular issue.
1: I mean, therapy in general, really, right? Like how often do people go (laughs) I mean, this may need to be treated. I did read in your paper that there are different approaches where not only do you go to individual therapy, but you go to group therapy and you have assessments done and, you know, this is not Mm -hmm. right. Something that is just something that you go to therapy once a week for.
0: Right. So, so it depends. So let's, let's speak about therapy in general, and then we'll see how we can apply it. The goal
1: of therapy. I like that.
0: So a lot of people ask me who needs therapy. And I think it's a fantastic question. It's a fantastic, who needs therapy? It's a great question. Mm The unprofessional answer is come on, guys, we all do. But let's let's get a little bit more professional um, and a little bit more precise. Most people could benefit from therapy. Most people could benefit from having an hour a week in which they are having the undivided attention of a person who's a good listener and who hopefully has, you know, a lot of skills that they could share and impart. And just to have that opportunity, anyone who has the time and the money, you know, is lacking anything in their life, it could be a good idea. But who are the people who, even if they don't have the time and they don't have the money, they have to they have to make it happen. They have to prioritize it. I would say that it's, I would break it, I guess, into three different groups. Number one, people who whose productivity is being impacted by something going on in their life. They're just, they're not able, but they're functioning. That's what I'm looking for. If a person's functioning is being impacted by their emotions or their emotional dysregulation or certain behaviors that they don't seem to able to, to control, that's somebody who should be going to therapy. If a person is really suffering, and suffering beyond that we all have challenges we all have things going on in our life but it's at a point where it's they're really hurting very very badly there are other people looking at them and being like dude you need help if you're at a person's at that point where they're really in in that much pain whether it's because they're anxious or they're depressed or whatever it might be so then that's somebody who also really should be going to therapy and number three would be a person might say yeah I'm, i'm functioning fine and i feel fine but people around them are suffering from them those are also people who I think that's the third category, which really I always spoke about the first two. And over the past, actually only a couple of weeks, I started really thinking about that third category of people also. And again, the fact that there's one person who says, dude, you need therapy or, you know, man you you got something going on that's that's not necessarily proof but you know if you have a man whose wife and children are really suffering because of his behavior or because of what's going on with him or you have a woman whose co-workers really can't deal with her and the common denominator is that everyone's issue is with her whoever it might however it might be that's a person who probably also should really be going for help so that's number one who should be going to therapy what does therapy do different therapists have different approaches Uh, There are lots, there are hundreds, depending on how small you break it down, there are hundreds of approaches to therapy, hundreds of different techniques, depending on how you want to define it. But essentially, I think what I'm trying to offer to my clients primarily is a safe space. I want that there's at least an hour a week or 50 minutes, which they're coming into my office and that that is, it's a cocoon for them. It's a safe space. It's a space where they know that they will not be judged no matter what they say or do. It's a space in that they know that they are accepted completely and totally for who they are, no matter no matter what, literally no matter what. It's a space where they will always be respected and they might be called out. I might challenge them, but I will always respect them. I will always, always, always I may not always respect their choices, but I will always respect their right to make those choices. So if I'm sitting with a young man and he says, I'm really in the mood to do cocaine, now, this doesn't happen every day. But now I personally don't think that it's usually... It's usually, not a good idea to do, do cocaine. I think most people would agree that it's not usually a good idea to do cocaine. I think that's that's pretty broad consensus on that. And I also don't think uh, I have not yet met the person who has described to me why cocaine would be a good idea for them. But if that's a decision that a person makes, even if I disagree with their decision, even if I think that it's probably not a good idea, but they have the right to make that decision. What I'm trying to do is number one, create that safe space. That's the primary thing that I'm trying to do for my clientele, especially with young people who so often feel like they don't have a space and they don't have anyone who's really hearing them, who's really listening to them. So it's, it's so, so important for them to know, here you're good, here you're accepted, here no matter what you're doing. And again, I might challenge you, I might ask you why you're making those decisions. I might wanna get you to think about it and, and, and think about it again, and consider it and reconsider it and reconsider it. But ultimately you're gonna make the decisions. I, I love telling people, I'm not gonna suffer for the choices that you make. You're gonna live with the consequences, which is also why I don't give a lot of advice.
1: Also, I now that you brought up consequences, don't you believe that someone who molests someone else should have consequences?
0: It's a very good question. The immediate emotional response is, of course, they have to pay the price for what they did. I guess the question is, what's our goal? What are we trying to accomplish with those consequences? If it's simply a matter of, well, you do something wrong and therefore we punish you... Uh, personally, I'm a religious, I, I believe in God, I'm a religious person. And I, I don't know that that's not that's my job. That's my role, necessarily, to be meeting out punishments. I do believe that everyone will get what they deserve, whether it's in this world or in the next world. That's one thing to consider. Another thing to consider is, well, is it going to be effective? A lot of people will say, well, let's let's get this guy so that the next guy, you know, we'll, we'll see and and will realize it's not worth it. That is meaningful. It's a very good question. Again, I guess the, the most important question to me is, is uh, when I'm looking at a young man sitting across from her, even, even if it wasn't such a young man, is what's more likely to get this to stop? Punishing him or not punishing him? And people might be surprised, but my understanding is that it actually is more likely, that we can get more into why it is that people do this, how people get into these types of behaviors. But one thing seems pretty clear in, in the work that I've done and a lot of research that I've seen is that very often a very important piece of it is a lack of connection or lack of healthy connection. If what a person is lacking is healthy connection, and then you ostracize them, that's not going to teach them to connect healthily. If what a person is lacking is love and acceptance, and then we throw them in prison for five or seven or 10 or 15 years, they're probably not getting a whole lot of love there. That would be my guess. I don't know. I thankfully have never been in prison, but I've seen some movies. It doesn't look like a happy, fun place. I have worked with some kids who have been have spent some time there. Very few of them report that it was warm, fuzzy, friendly and enjoyable. So if what I need is love, what I need is connection, what I need is somebody to help me to connect in a meaningful way, is pushing people away going to help us get to that point or is bringing them closer going to get to that point? Where I live in Israel, at least for minors, the approach is much more reparative. It's much more about how can we get this young man to a place of health than it is punitive. Once a person is over 18 or certainly over 20 and up, then it's much more like you're an adult, you're responsible for what you did. You're in trouble, buddy, I'm sorry. When we're dealing with minors, as a general rule, even the justice system in Israel builds in such a way, we want to make sure this kid does not become a repeat offender. We want whatever he did wrong, whether he broke into somebody's house, he spray painted graffiti on a wall, whatever it is, the approach, there's always a social worker involved. How can we help them? How can we get this kid to a point where he'll make better decisions moving forward? Uh, How effective the system is 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 a legitimate question, but that's definitely the stress. The stress is to the extent possible, let's get this kid out of trouble, not send them on a path of more and more trouble. And I think that that's in general a very good idea. And I think it's particularly a good idea in this area. If a young person is confused, he's in pain, he's lacking. And from that place of lack, he goes and he behaves inappropriately, and again, I don't. I don't want to whitewash the behavior. The behavior is horrific. It's completely inappropriate. And again, there's also a spectrum. There's, you know, it ranges from inappropriate touch, or you know, or maybe you know, showing your friend, you know, a kid younger than you something even on a phone or on a screen that also is considered a form of sexual abuse. If a 13-year-old would show pornography to a 10-year-old, that's considered sexual abuse. If a 15-year-old told it to a 13-year-old, that's, that's considered sexual abuse. At least I know legally in Israel it is. I believe it's the same in America. I can't tell you for sure. So that's that's one level, you know, in a slightly, you know, a a small amount of touch is, you know, and then all the way to full blown sexual activity, including intercourse, that's obviously much more severe. It also makes a very big difference if we're talking about something that happened one, two, three, four times or something that happened, let's say, on a weekly basis for six months or a year or two years. It's very, very different. But regardless, if we're talking about a behavior which has not yet become a part of the person's modus operandi, it's, it's still a reactive behavior. And we can help them heal, help them understand how they got to this point and then move to a healthier place. That is going to be much more effective than penalizing them in some way and hoping that that's going to create the deterrent that we want. You can do some, you know, some very simple searches to find out about recidivism amongst sexual predators. Which again is more you're talking about an older population, they, they do it again. Punishment does not work. It's not an effective deterrent. You're talking about somebody who's in a very, very bad place. The one program which has had very impressive success, I mentioned in in the article that I sent to you, is a program called Circles of Support and Accountability. It's a program, I believe it was founded in Canada. It spreads a little bit in the United States. It's in England, it's in it's in many places in the world. It's gaining popularity. And the idea is very similar to the what I've described, the type of work that I like to do. Is as opposed to saying you're a sicko, you are you're 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 dangerous, get out of here. It's more like you have needs, you're a potential threat, and therefore we're going to make sure you're, you're not gonna work with you're not gonna work in a kindergarten <laughs> and you're not gonna be a bus driver and you're not gonna be a camp counselor or a coach of a basketball team because that's too dangerous. But you can be a part of the community as long as you're cooperating with the work that we're doing. And there's gonna be individual therapy and there's gonna be group therapy, and we're gonna we're gonna work with you if you're working with us. But you will still be allowed to be a part of the community. You will still continue You will have the emotional support that you so desperately need. And the early studies on this approach are that it is tens of times more successful than anything we've been doing until now with adults. And it makes sense because, again, people have needs. They have legitimate needs. And it's very unusual that you have a person who's a healthy, balanced individual who wakes up one day and says, you know what, I'm in the mood to molest somebody. You know, I'm I'm in the mood to really destroy a child's life. (laughs) It's somebody who obviously is in a lot of pain, obviously has, again, and I'm not in any way whitewashing the behavior. Sexual abuse kills people. It is an extremely, there are few things that are more destructive to a human being than being molested. So I'm in no way minimizing the pain and the hurt and the damage, not in any way. And a person, a big part of the therapy that we do is really taking responsibility and really being willing in the ideal setting, the person who has hurt the other will literally sit in the room with their victim and apologize and say, I did this to you. You bear no responsibility. It's completely on me. You should feel no shame for what you've done. This is completely on me. I understand how I got to the point that I could do this. I've done the work necessary to be, to ensure that I won't do it again. And I'm so, so sorry for having hurt you. And I have had the privilege of being a part of such meetings. In fact, I probably will be a part of another one either this week or next week. And it's extremely exciting to be able to sit in that room. I remember a few years ago, I was working with a young man, a young man I worked with for over two years. We knew that he had behaved inappropriately with a neighbor of his who's considerably younger than his. The neighbor realized what happened, whatever was going on with their young daughter. They realized something had happened. They were able to trace it back to their 15-year-old neighbor. And they said, listen, this is what happened. And obviously, at first, he denied it. And eventually, he said, it's true. And we sent him for an evaluation, a whole process. He came to me for two meetings. I said, I'm not continuing to be with you until we have a proper evaluation done. Also to cover ourselves legally for when that would, when whatever would hit the fan, et cetera. We have a whole evaluation. He comes back to me and I go through the evaluation with him, not the entire thing, but basically the recommendations at the end. And he was clearly very disturbed as we're having this conversation. He left. He calls me half an hour later. He's like, I need to come back. Thankfully, I had some time. He comes back. He sits down across from me and he bursts out crying. He said, it's not only my neighbor, it's also my sister's.
1: Oh my God.
0: Wow. Now that means also that I did not necessarily have a legal obligation to report it until that point. But now I do. I called the parents and I I called a friend of his, we called his, a very close friend of his, who I told to watch him like a hawk over the next hour. I called his parents. I said, I need you to come here now. They said, okay, they came having one hour later, whenever it was, they came a little bit later. I explained to them what happened. Obviously it was like a punch to the gut, but they were not completely shocked like they were surprised, but not shocked. They they kind of wondered, once they knew that something had happened over there, did it happen here also? I brought him back into the room. They actually handled it very well. They gave him a hug. They said, we love you anyway. We're going to work this out. It was not smooth sailing from there. It was not simple at all. They went through their processes. His sisters had to go through their processes. But two years later, his sisters were not yet ready, but We we wrote a letter together to his neighbor, the young girl, in which he apologized for what had happened and thanked her for telling her parents that thanks to her, he was able to get help. and And he really was a completely different person two years later. It was an incredible process to be a part of. And then her parents felt like they needed an apology as well. They came to me once with his permission. They came to me once without him there for us to discuss how they were feeling, what was going on. A week later, they came in with him. He sat next to me. They sat across from us and he took complete responsibility for what he had done. He apologized for the pain that he had caused them and and they were able to say to him, you look like a different person than you did 2 years ago. You look like you're not the same person who and and they still needed that apology, but they they were able to see in him that he had really changed that much and he had and it was just it was it was just an incredible incredible story. The story that I just described to you, I've actually experienced that, no one can tell me that they know who I'm talking about because it's happened two, three, four, five times. It's something that's happened many, many times. Unfortunately, this is very common. It's way more common than anyone wants to believe. And they don't all have that happy ending, but the ones that do, it's just an incredible, incredible process. That young man was able to get to a point where he said, of course, I regret what I did. But if it had never happened, I would never be as good and as healthy a person as I am.
1: It's so hard to believe that a person can heal from that and like never do it again.
0: Yeah, I hear that. I hear that very much. Also,
1: like, what happens if he gets married and has kids? You know, like, well,
0: I certainly hope that he will get married, and I certainly hope that he will have kids. I'm a big fan of both of those things, as a general rule. And again, so let you know what you asked. You you mentioned the word pedophile before, or if there are any English people listening to this, pedophile, because it's the same thing. It's just we pronounce it differently. Let's break down that term. What does the word pedophile mean? So we all know that file is the second half of a word which means lover of. So a bibliophile is someone who loves books. A pedophile is someone who loves children. Now, it doesn't mean that really nice old lady nursery teacher who loves children in that way. Um, that, I, I don't know why it doesn't mean that, but that's not, that's not what it means. What it means is someone who is sexually attracted to children. Many people, especially when you're talking about a young person who's 12, let's say between 12 and 18, the fact that they're acting out sexually with somebody younger than them does not necessarily mean that they're per se sexually attracted to children. If a 13-year-old behaves inappropriately with an 11-year-old, that means he's a pedophile or or that's, that's just what makes sense. Who, who 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 would he act out with, his age or, or less, most of the time? It's very unusual. It, it happens, but it's far less common that you're going to have a 13-year-old molesting a 17-year-old. That's, not, that's just not, it doesn't, doesn't usually work that way. It's theoretically possible. It could be that you'll have a 13-year-old who's just, you know, got that personality and he goes out and, you know, who knows? It's possible. It could be. It's much more common that a 17-year-old is going to molest a 13-year-old or that a 13-year-old is going to molest an 11-year-old or a 10-year-old. And it might go younger, but it's usually more an issue of availability or possibility than it is an issue of, per per se, being sexually attracted to a young child. I don't know how simple it is to get somebody who's attracted to children to be not attracted to children. But first of all, most young people that are behaving inappropriately with children, it's not because they're necessarily attracted to them. It doesn't have anything to do with it, number one. Number two, it's entirely possible that a person is attracted to children, but realizes that it's inappropriate to engage in sexual activity with a child and therefore never will. Not every person who's attracted to blondes will engage in sexual activity with blondes. Either he will control himself or he will control himself. The same thing will be true with somebody who's attracted to anyone or anything or or whatever it might be. So if a person for some reason is particularly attracted to uh, women in their 80s, you know, it might be weird for that person to work in a nursing home, maybe, but it doesn't mean he's not going to do anything wrong.
1: There is abuse that happens at nursing homes. That just hit the news, actually.
0: Uh, there, There is abuse that happens everywhere. There's abuse that happens everywhere. There's so much about the society that we're living in and the world around us, which is so unhealthy in so many ways. And in particular, when it comes to sexuality, to find good Wholesome healthy sexuality nowadays is is difficult, frankly. It's very hard to find. I, for the life of me, do not understand why pornography is legal. It's the most potent and dangerous drug that I think man has ever found. And it's not just it's not just legal. It's 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 in everybody's pockets nowadays. In my community, many people have filters in their computer, they have on the smartphone that I have, I have WhatsApp, I have, you know, various different apps. I actually have no browser on my smartphone. No browser at all, Can't I can't do a Google search, I can't, can't get the website. A lot of people ask me, well, you don't trust yourself? And the honest answer is, why would I? Why would I take that risk? The convenience that it offers is not worth the potential downfall. It's just not worth it. Yeah, I have filters on my computer because I don't want to myself or one of my children to accidentally end up somewhere which is going to, again, as a religious person, sully my soul. And even just as a professional, impacted me in a very, very unhealthy way. The dopamine hits that people get from watching pornography is insane. It's crazy. These people know what they're doing. The people who are making these websites and who are making these videos, they're professionals in the same way that there's all this talk right now about the effect of social media on the brain, which is very serious. I've noticed it on myself, or the way I've changed over the past oh, five God, years. You yeah. I'm saying? That, that's child's play, unfortunately, actually but that's because they're they're targeting kids. But that's child's play compared to what pornography does to you. Pornography completely warps a person's understanding of sexuality, especially if we're talking about a young person. Talking about a young person, most parents are not comfortable. This is certainly true in religious communities, but not only. Most parents are uncomfortable speaking to their children about sexuality. They're uncomfortable speaking to their kids about sex. They're uncomfortable speaking to their kids about their bodies maturing. It's just a topic. It it seems to be inbred in humanity. We all have that. Not all. Many of us have this inherent embarrassment is not exactly the right word, but this uh, shame may or may not be the right word. But this reticence to have these conversations in general, and certainly when we're talking with... With our children with children and with our children. I think even for myself. I speak to teens about sexuality almost on a daily basis. It makes it easier, but doesn't make it easy for me to have that conversation with my 15-year-old or 13-year-old son.
1: What does the conversation look like with the children that you are speaking to?
0: A lot of it will have to do with what they've already been exposed to. Again, a lot of the kids I'm working with are coming from a religious background. And it's something we have to be very careful and very sensitive to the sensitivities of the community. Again, if the kid has had sex, then obviously we can have a much more open conversation. But there are kids who have touched you know, boys or girls inappropriately without fully appreciating what they were doing, without having a real understanding of what they were doing. I want to have the conversation. I want to have it in as open a fashion as they can handle, but I don't necessarily want to teach them more than they need to know right now. They don't necessarily need to know everything. Uh, If the expectation is that they will not be engaged in sexual activity until they're married, which is the expectation in many religious communities, or at least it's the hope in many religious communities. So then we don't necessarily need to know, you know, I'm saying the the best position for whatever. And so that's, that's not relevant. But what I think is always relevant is what are the changes going on in your body? Why are these changes happening? What's going on? How come? You know, a year ago, you could, you know, you could run a, a knife along my body and you wouldn't catch a certain, you know, a hair. And all of a sudden it's sprouting from all sorts of interesting places and very interesting places. How did that happen for a girl? For sure. If a girl does not know what a period is and then it happens without any preparation, that's a traumatic experience. That's scary. That's blood. Why is there blood coming out of me? you have to, you got to be prepared for that kind of thing. You have to be prepared for the changes for a boy. Also a boy wakes up, you know, in the middle of the night, wakes up in the morning. And all of a sudden he's like all wet. And like, he's like, I, I haven't wet the bed since I was you know, four or five, six years old. What is like, it's, it's a weird experience. So if they have no idea, and, and it's not like regular either, like, like what's going on now, actually what's going on is in a, in a manner of speaking, is that your body's kind of doing a test run. Your body's kind of checking itself and seeing that it works. I mean, again, if the kid went to sleep dreaming about whomever then things happen but sometimes it's just frankly your body just you know kind of checks itself and kind of tests itself just kind of you know such a thing called an nocturnal emission, it happens. And it's cool, dude. It's, it's just, you know what I'm saying? It's part of life. And depending on how many questions they have, and, and it's something that I'm always gauging, what kind of questions do they have? How much are they already exposed? If they already know, or they already have real questions, I want to be the one answering them. I don't want them getting that answer, you know, from the kid on the back of the bus, from the kid in the corner, you know what I'm saying? For some creepy dude who wants to explain it to them by showing it to them. You know, I don't I don't want any of that. If you have a question, come to me and we'll discuss it. One of the things that I think is very important for kids to realize is that as your body becomes capable of begetting children, you will begin to desire to do the things that lead to that. So if a kid, you know, had nothing to do with, you know, any, you know what I'm saying? 10 year old boy, he's in the park, he's playing ball, he's running around, he's in the mud, whatever it is. I know I'm being very stereotypical right now, but it just makes it much easier. You know, the the only when he saw a girl, the the only thought in his mind was if I pull her hair, she'll probably scream and that's funny. And then a year or two or three later, all of a sudden it's not his her hair that he wants to be touching. And he might not understand why. Now, if he's you know, if he's got social media or he's watching, you know, Netflix or whatever, then he probably has some idea. He's gotten some education. If for whatever reason he hasn't, then he might have a lot less education. He might really not know. And we need to we need to speak about it. Even if he's watching Netflix or he's even been exposed to pornography. We want to put it into a healthy context. We want to speak about what's a healthy relationship between a man and a woman. We want to speak about objectification and why that's not a good idea. We want to speak about mutuality because that's essentially what's lacking in a situation in which we have molestation is where we have one person who's putting their own desires over the other person's needs or the, over the other person's safety. I'm not a fan of this, but if you have, let's say, a 14-year-old boy and a 14-year-old girl, and there's no you know, serious social imbalance between them, there's no serious cognitive imbalance between them and they are both they engage in a consensual relationship i personally don't think it's appropriate because of my own values but that's not illegal and that's not molestation if he's the most popular kid in school and she's you know on the outskirts of the social grouping then we have to wonder was that really consensual was he taking advantage of her even if they're the same age certainly if they're not the same age then we're going to ask that question that's a very important thing for a boy who doesn't know his way around sexuality, who doesn't know his way, you know, these, you know, what is what he seen? Even if he, has, let's say, he hasn't seen pornography, but he's seen a movie, and the movie, the movies, everything goes smoothly. You know, the guy, like, he makes his move in, he puts his arm around her, she's dying for it to happen, and, and everything's fantastic. I haven't seen a movie in a little while, but I can't imagine that's changed drastically. I don't imagine that they really change that aspect of it. There's a reason they have this in every movie. you know what I'm saying it doesn't matter what the movie's about. There's always that one scene. Because that's how you get males between the ages of 18 and 34 interested. And that's who pays the most for movies. They're, they're going to try to interest those guys and they're going to paint a very unrealistic picture. So now, whether you're a 10 year old boy or a 14 year old boy or an 18 year old boy and who doesn't have a lot of experience, you're just assuming it's going to go a certain way. And you might not be savvy enough or be interested enough in noticing that this girl is not looking at you quite the way that they did in the movies. You might not pick up on the sign. There are a lot of times where people are making. I don't know if it's a fully innocent mistake, but they're genuinely making a mistake as opposed to attempting to do something wrong. Especially once you're going to involve drugs, you're going to involve, you're going to involve alcohol and a person's judgment is already impaired. And you know what I'm saying? And they're already making assumptions. I want to have a conversation about, you know, you don't ever touch anybody of any you know, at all in a way that makes them uncomfortable. You don't ever, you shouldn't do anything which makes another person uncomfortable. You shouldn't be speaking to somebody. You shouldn't be making suggestions to somebody. We should try to be sensitive to other people. We should try to be respectful of their boundaries. And I think that that's the most, that's one of the critical things I'm going to speak to my clients about. What are healthy boundaries? Almost anything is appropriate, almost anything, not anything, but almost anything is appropriate if it's in the right place and the right time with the right person. If you have a husband and wife who love each other and they're in their bedroom with the door closed, as we say in Israel, Bechavot, yeah, please go ahead, have a great time. Again, but even there, there could be something that one partner is interested in the other you know once and the other one doesn't and there also you have to be respectful of boundaries there also you have to say no that i i am comfortable with this or i'm not comfortable with this and that, that, that's all i mean maybe we have to talk to everybody about this <laughs> you know what i'm saying like i a, a lot of marriage counselors are dealing with this kind of thing just the communication around this also you should not be touching anybody in any way that's going to make them uncomfortable that's the first thing is to respect another person's boundaries and then it's just what are behaviors that are just there's no way that that's going to be appropriate unless you're invited into that. There's no way that that's going to be okay unless the context clearly calls for that. So again, in most religious communities, you should not be touching each other until you're married. In other communities, those boundaries can become a lot less clear. But one thing is for sure, you'll never lose by asking. You got to be careful. <laughs> you, you, you know what I'm saying? Like,
1: I definitely shit, think that it's something that we need to talk to our daughters about too. I mean, I worry about that.
0: You can't have too much communication with, you. I mean, again, you don't want to make your kids obsessed. You don't want to be talking about sex all the time. That, that's obviously not healthy. But I do remember, I have to say, that uh, I remember there was one time It happened to be that in this particular area, it was very easy for me to speak to my father about these things. Better call daddy, right? So you got your daddy, I got my daddy.
1: Yeah, um, I was wondering what your relationship with your dad was like.
0: You actually know my father, I believe. It happened to be it was very easy for me to speak to my father about these things. We were once driving together. I, I remember when it was. We were on our way to the airport, actually. Just the two of us. The rest of the family had, our family had already flown. We were on the way to the airport, and we were driving through some neighborhoods of lower socioeconomic standards. And there was a huge billboard. And we drove right under it. It said, talk to your kids about sex. So I'm 18 at the time. And I look at my father. He's driving. I'm sitting next to him. I was like, no, go ahead. So he's like, what do you want to ask? So I asked him an extremely explicit question. And he answered me. Straight up, no problem. You know, like He was able to answer that question. The curiosity of an 18-year-old. But I give him credit for being able to have that conversation with me. One of the things that I try to stress to my own children and I try to encourage parents to stress to their children is if you ever have a question, please come. If you ever have anything which is on your mind, please talk to us about it. And they often won't. But if they if they sense that it's genuine, that our, our desire to answer their questions is real, and if in general the relationship is one in which there is open conversation and they feel safe with us and they don't feel that we're gonna, they're going to be judged or they're going to be yelled at or they're going to be, you know, how dare you say such a thing, ask such a thing, think such a thing, if if that's what we're saying to them, so then they're going to be much more reticent to speak As, again, especially in a religious community where ideally no connection between boys and girls, and boys are supposed to really be focused on their studies and are not supposed to be at all engaging in any sort of even thoughts or or no masturbation and not, nothing like that. So then, it, it, you know, a normal healthy teenager is going to have desires. They're going to have urges. They're going and, and it can and when you're exhorted to try to hold all that back, it can be challenging. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how we overcome those challenges. Let's talk about how we deal with it. Let's talk about what do we do if we did something that we we feel a little bit guilty about?
1: What do we do?
0: How do we deal with those urges? Yeah. That's actually my next... Hopefully, I think my next, probably my next LinkedIn post is going to be, I was on a podcast. It was really cool. (laughs) I didn't realize it would be so much fun. I I need more cameras on me. I probably shouldn't write that. It won't sound good. But my plan for my next quote unquote real post will be about purple elephants. Whatever you do right now, don't think about purple elephants. Do not think about purple elephants. What are you thinking about?
1: Of course.
0: Exactly. So if you tell a young man, A really, really attractive young woman just walked right by you. And not only is she attractive, she's also letting you see a whole bunch of things that are making you interested in seeing more. And I say to him, don't think about the girl. Whatever you do, don't think about the girl. Just don't do it. What do you think he's going to be thinking about? He's going to be thinking about the purple elephant. That's exactly, she is the purple elephant. That's what he's going to be thinking about. The only way to not think about purple elephants is by thinking about pink hippopotami. In other words, the only way to not think about something is to think about something else. The subconscious right. mind does not understand the negative. The sub is if you really want to get into the depth of it, the subconscious mind does not understand the word no, it does not understand the word don't. It doesn't, those things don't exist in the subconscious. Because the subconscious doesn't work based on logic, it works based on association. So if I say to the if I'm saying to you, don't think about purple elephants, your subconscious is just thinking, oh, purple elephants, no problem. I got you. But if instead I say to it, I want you to think about the hippopotamus it happens to be my purpose. I don't know if I don't know what a soul animal is, but if I had one, it would have to be the hippopotamus. you, you think about it, it's just it's a dream. it's just a stomach, a mouth and like rollerblades. One of the reasons that we struggle with that so much in this generation is because we spend so much time in a passive state just scrolling and letting the information come in, just watching, just listening without being actively engaged.
1: I want to ask you a couple things because I know we're coming up on the hour here. One, I want to know what gravitated you towards this work. Okay. Two, I think a big misconception is that people become abusers if they were abused. And according to your paper, that's not necessarily true. So I want to talk Mm -hmm. about those two things.
0: Okay. Uh, How did I get into this? When I decided to open my, I was working... When I first moved to Israel, we're living in Israel now for a little bit more than 16 years. When I first moved to Israel, I was working for an organization in my neighborhood, working with what people like to call kids at risk. I don't particularly love that term, but kids who are out in the street, hanging out, maybe in school, maybe not, um, probably engaging in what are known as antisocial behaviors. And I was running a program for them, and through doing that, became... Uh, Familiar with a lot of the therapists in the neighborhood, especially one woman in particular, her name is Halise Pollack, and Halise would become my guru as time went on. Halise's specialty, or one of her specialties, is working with victims of sexual abuse. A number of the guys in our program, it took us time, but eventually we realized a number of them were victims of sexual abuse, or the term most people prefer is survivors of sexual abuse. So we ended up sending a number of guys to her, and via that, I built a relationship with her. When I decided to open my private practice, I asked her if she would be my supervisor. And for the next nine or so years, the beginning on a weekly, and then on, on every, you know every other week basis, I would be in her office discussing my clients with her and learning from her. She taught me how to, it's my informal training in treating victims of abuse was through her. She has decades of experience doing it. Um, and she taught me how to do it. There was a case that came to her that she, didn't. She for whatever reason, didn't want to take it. She said, Elia, I want you to take this case. I said, I don't know how to do this. She's like, you will. We're going to talk about it every week, and and we're going to focus on that, and you're going to learn how to do this. And that's that was my first victim of sexual abuse that I worked with as a as a therapist. Meaning, I worked in the past as a mentor, and you know, as a friend, and whatever. But the first time as a therapist, she taught me how to do that. A couple of years later, there was an organization in in our city who worked with victims of abuse, and they realized that. One of the important things to stop people from becoming victims is to try to work with young people who are hurting others. And they subsidize, a course, for the training to do therapy with youth who have hurt sexually hurt other youth. And Halise basically forced me. <laughs> she didn't force me, but she pushed me very, very hard. She said to me, if you can do it, if you have the stomach for it, if you can handle it, there's a tremendous need. Please, please, please do it. They aside from it being subsidized, they offered a great payment plan. So we uh, we took advantage of it. It was a hundred and fifty hour course spanning over a number of months. It was once a week for I think four hours a week, four hours at a time. We got trained by some of the people who are some of the big names in Israel in dealing with sexual abuse and particular with dealing with what are known as perpetrators. But again, I don't love that word of sexual abuse. I did the training and I was told that I would get busy and. It, Takes time to build a reputation, but yeah, people find you, especially to find someone who is again, we're in Israel where the where the spoken language is Hebrew. So I'm English speaking. So a lot of people looking for English speaking therapists. I'm male, which there are not as many of those doing this as you might think. And I'm what people call Haredi, ultra Orthodox. So to find someone who fits in all of those categories, there are a few others, but they're not, I don't know many others in the country that 100% fit that bill, that have 100% of the training that I have. So people somehow find me. And I don't only work with English speakers. I also work in Hebrew. I speak full in Hebrew. So I've worked with, and I, I work with a lot of kids that were kind of speaking both. Their parents are Anglos and they are more Israeli. So we'll do a lot of that. So that's how I got into this kind of work. And the work that I did with the quote unquote youth at risk really trained me very well for this as well, because in that work, it's very much about accepting somebody for who they are, even if you don't approve of their behavior. I accept Were you are ever one. at risk? Define at risk. No one I don't think would ever have categorized me as such. I certainly have drank alcohol. I, I love whiskey at this point in my life, but I never had an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. I have not touched a drug in my life ever. I a lot of people
1: did. turn pain into purpose is what I'm asking. So
0: I, I definitely have had challenges in my life. Although a lot of people, when they're sitting across from me, I very much understand what anxiety is because I've experienced it. I understand depression because maybe not a deep, deep, deep depression, but I've experienced depression. I understand self-loathing. I understand pain so bad that you would never kill yourself, but you wouldn't mind if you didn't wake up in the morning. I know what these things are. I've been in therapy myself a number of times. I've been helped tremendously by a lot of people. Being in supervision as a therapist is also a great opportunity to continue to work on yourself and to understand yourself, which is to a large extent what therapy is about. We had started in the very beginning. We're talking about what's therapy about, what's it for, what are we doing? So we spoke about creating that safe space. It's also a lot about really understanding ourselves. Really, I really just try to help young people who are generally, as as a rule, teens are confused. I try to help them work their way through that confusion to understand themselves better. And then also to learn skills and tools to better handle life.
1: I have another question too. Have you found that, or do you believe that more people are in therapy from less people believing in God?
0: That's a great question. I don't know that a belief in God can deal with serious pathology or will heal trauma necessarily. But I think that a person who believes in God should be less, but genuinely, not not just in word, but in actual, but in their heart, they should suffer from anxiety less. They should suffer from depression less. Everything has a purpose. Everything has a reason. Nothing is by accident. There's someone who's running the show. That definitely can help. And I know that it helps me in my life and when I'm dealing with challenging times, for sure. I feel bad because it was another question you had asked me that you had wanted me to answer. You asked about how I got into this, and then there was a follow-up question to that.
1: Oh, the uh, follow-up question was, are most of these kids um, oh, yes. abused Excellent. themselves?
0: Yeah. The study that I found uh, on the topic, it's interesting because in, in my clientele, it's a mixed bag. There are some, are some that yes and some that no. The study seemed to indicate that somebody who has been abused is more likely to abuse someone else than someone who has never abused. That's true. They're more likely to do that. However, that does not mean that most people who have abused have necessarily been abused. Certainly when we're talking about youth, they're definitely in pain, they're definitely confused. They're they're hurting in some way. Something is lacking, something is off. That is certainly true. Have they necessarily been sexually abused? No, I have not found that 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 is the case. But many of them, even if they weren't properly abused, if you will, properly abused is even a term you could say, many of them have had very confusing experiences where they were, in, they were introduced to sexuality in a very confusing or very unhealthy way. So even if they didn't experience it as abuse, I'm thinking of one young man that I worked with many, a number of years ago, who at the age of 12, 13, whatever exactly it was, was curious about masturbation, didn't know what it was, couldn't ask his father, asked his older brother. And the way his older brother taught him how to do it, how to do it was by doing it to him. Now, technically speaking, if a 14 or 15-year-old brother is... You know, doing that, you know, touching his younger brother's private parts and getting, getting him to a point of ejaculation, that's technically speaking abuse. He, he experienced it as a very, you know, positive and pleasurable experience. He was not upset at his brother in any way. That did, however, give him a very unhealthy sense of boundaries or, or contributed to a very unhealthy sense of boundaries. It definitely did not teach him in the right way of how, how should, we should be doing this. So was he a victim of abuse? I would not say so. Was he a victim of poor boundaries? Yes, absolutely. There was obviously there was more to that, as there are to more cases. You'll never find that one thing. This kid did this because a. No, it's a and b and c and d, and it's a mixture of things. And and for everybody, it's a slightly different recipe of how they got to that point. You can view sexuality as just a way to you know have a good time. You could you could look at it that way. But I think sexuality in its purest, highest, and most beautiful form is the deepest connection that two human beings can share. And when sexuality is an expression of love, th- then you have, you've, you've accomplished the most, you, you get the most out of it. It'll be a much, It not only is an emotionally more pleasurable experience, it's actually a physically more pleasurable experience as well. FMRI studies show that. That's what I want to get person to be. So these kids who were looking for connection and found it via sexual activity, they weren't wrong in essence. It was just the timing and the placement and the, and the partner was off.
1: Okay. I wrote down one more question too, because- okay. In your paper, you talked about it being more common amongst ADHD and impulsive children. Right. How is therapy going to change an impulse? Like I have an impulse for coffee. You know, drug addicts have an impulse for opioids, right?
0: I don't know if, I mean, addiction and impulse are not exactly, the, I mean, when you're talking about an addiction, especially a, fix, a physical addiction, it's a little bit beyond just an impulse i mean that's a real that's a pull that's a draw that's that's a craving when we're talking about kids that are that are struggling with ADD, adhd very often those are the kids who are who are acting before they're thinking and afterwards are like oh so to be fair most of us do that sometimes right i, I don't like the notion that it's a yes or no it's it's not an it's not a it's not a binary you know on or off yes or no it's a spectrum and then we all live somewhere along that spectrum and more accurately we all live in a spectrum and that spectrum. And we, we live within that range, if you will, on the spectrum. So some of us live at this end and some of us live in the middle and some of us live at this end. You know, some people spontaneous for them is, you know, they they'll take a small spoon instead of a large spoon and they're really living it up. There's, you know, everyone's, I don't judge. Everyone's got their thing. And there are some people, if they're in the same country, I actually met a young man who, if he's in the same country, three nights in a row, he feels like he's not living. How he does that, he would not share with me the details of, but even through COVID, the kid is everywhere. It's really very impressive. If you want to talk to somebody about ADHD, there are, I I can recommend 15 people who know way more about it than I do.
1: I just found that it was interesting that it shows, according to the paper, that more kids who have that impulsivity could lead to this type of behavior?
0: Kids who are more impulsive uh, are more likely to make bad decisions in general. So therefore, they're also more likely to make bad decisions in this area. The idea here is everybody knows this is wrong. They might not know how wrong. They might not know how damaging it is. There's There's no kid who... This very rarely happens in broad daylight in front of other people. This very rarely happens in the living room when your mom's sitting on the couch, right? That's not where these things are taking place. They're taking place in the attic, or they're taking place in the bedroom, or they're taking place in the basement, or it's taking place in a forest, or it's taking place you know, in, in, in a bathroom. The, these things happen in private areas. And the reason is because intuitively the kid knows, or the not kid knows, that he's doing something inappropriate. He knows he's doing something wrong. But if I have a hard time holding myself back when I want something, I'm more likely to, to, to jump after something. One of the things that we need to try to teach our children is wait. You can have, you know, relax, slow down. There are so many people nowadays, we don't know who's healthy and who's not healthy. We don't know who has good boundaries and who doesn't have good boundaries. A child can be hurt by anyone and a child could, realizing or not realizing what they're doing, hurt anyone. And we just have to be careful. We don't have, we should not be neurotic. It's not healthy. You can't be worrying all the time, but we have to have conversations with our children. And the most important thing, it's it's virtually impossible to guarantee that nothing will happen to our children. What we can do is foster the type of relationship that if God forbid anything happens, they'll come and speak to us. That if there's something they're confused about, they'll come and speak to us. If there's someone who did something that made them uncomfortable, they'll come and speak to us. And I need to be able to take that deep breath when they're speaking to me and really understand, okay, I need to understand what happened. Just explain it to me, whatever it is, it's okay. And they need to know that if somebody hurt them, it's not their fault that somebody hurt them or someone made them uncomfortable, it's not their fault. And that is the best thing we can do. If, if something, God forbid, happened to a child, but it was one time and they came and speak to us right away, if otherwise things are okay, they'll probably be out of therapy in under half a year. A guy came to me, it was very impressive. A guy saw there's an amazing organization called the they're based in New York. They, they do a tremendous amount of pushing education. They want people to be aware. They want public awareness, in particular in the Orthodox Jewish community, about sexual abuse. Young man who's studying in Jerusalem for a year or two, saw one of their videos, and that particular video was about somebody who had been molested as a child. I was having flashbacks in his forties. This kid calls up Amudim, who he ended up refer- they referred him to me because he had an experience when he was young, when he was in camp. He just wants to make sure that he was okay. He's like, "I think I'm okay, but I, I don't want to be, you know, contemplating suicide in-, in twenty years from now." I was like, "Amazing! It's fantastic you came. We had a total—I forget it was either three or four sessions. We flushed it out. We discussed it. He was fine." He was absolutely fine, but he checked to make sure that he was fine, which is amazing. Really, really the bottom line is have a good relationship with your kids. Have a relationship with your kids feel comfortable speaking to you, yeah? Make as few rules in your house as possible. Rules are critical for kids, for safety, for children, but have them be as few and far between as possible so that they feel comfortable. They feel like home is a good place to be. And I wanna be around my dad and I wanna be around my mom and I wanna talk to them and and they're fun people and they're cool people and I can communicate. And if we can do that for our kids, they are going to be so much safer than if not, not only because if something happens, they'll tell us, but also because kids like that tend to be more confident. You can tell if a kid has back or not.
1: What about the parents that are having trouble talking to their kids? Like what advice would you give them?
0: Number one, uh, I have a dream one day of writing a book, a parenting book. And what I want to, I, the name for this book, I don't know if I'll ever write it, but the name for it is going to be in, in parentheses, Unrealistic Expectations. Most of the mistakes we make as parents is because we're expecting more of our children than they should be giving us. Just know what's realistic. My wife and I, we love yelling at our kids, act your age. Oh, you are. We were in the school that I work in for this past Shabbos, for the past Sabbath, and we weren't at home and the kids barely spent any time with me because I was with the students you know, the entire time and everyone's exhausted. So they're gonna be tired or they're gonna be cranky and they're gonna complain more, they're gonna whine more and they're gonna moan more. That's what children do. Adults also do it, only we do it in a more mature way so we can get away with it. <laughs> but so, So you know what? When my five-year-old acts like a five-year-old, she's not doing anything wrong.
1: What are the rules in your house?
0: You have to listen to your mother. You can't say no to your mother you're not supposed to stand on the couch. Keep in mind, we're ultra-Orthodox Jews. <laughs> we have thousands of rules. We, we have lots and lots of rules, but those are things that, to a large extent, the kids just accept as a matter of course, because that's how we live. We do have a very interesting rule, which is a rule, but not a rule. When any of our children are out of the house, either my wife or I, or both, stay up until they're home. There's always a parent waiting up for the child the child who's out. Up to and including my eldest daughter, Until she got married, she was 19 years old. She was an independent young woman. She was getting married two days, a day before her wedding. We're not going to bed until she's home, which is annoying for them.
1: What if you've had some hard years and you're entering those teen years? How can you repair that?
0: So so again, so if there's, it's hard and it's, 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 it's it's worth investing a month or two and going to a professional who really knows what they're talking about. So they can guide you particularly in, 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 with your particular child, it's probably worth it. As a general rule, the more we can little play with your kids, spend time with them. You know what kids want more than anything, and literally what kids want more than anything is their parents' attention. My number one tip for parenting teens, bite your tongue. I would say on average, I bleed from my tongue three times a day. No, I don't bleed, I don't I don't bite that hard. I, I'm a man, I, don't, I can't handle pain. But there are so many things I wanna say, there's so many, you know, and the, no, I don't wanna be negative all the time. If there's something they're doing, if they did it one time and they didn't do it again, then it means it's not really that's not really an issue. And if they are going to do it again, then there'll be other opportunities where they'll be more open to hearing what you have to say. And spend some time with them and hear them out and, and find that opportunity to, you know, to slip in the message. The opportunities will present itself and just to have the conversation. I also am a very firm believer, tell your children that you love them. Don't assume that they know that. I do it I try to make sure that I tell my children at least once a day that I love them.
1: Are the teens that you meet with missing
0: that? Or adults you know who are not missing that. True. I don't believe you can say it too many times. What's the worst thing that'll happen? My, my five-year-old, like she's always laughing at me. She's like, I know, I, like, I love you, I know. How do you know? Because you told me, like, right? If I'm disappointed in you, it doesn't mean I don't love you. We can do both. I can't tell you how many hundreds of young men I've spoken to about the fact that you can feel two emotions at once, that you can love somebody and hate them at the same time. It's confusing, it's very confusing. But how could it be, you know, that's what your kids will yell at you. I hate you. They might, but it doesn't mean they don't love you. And sometimes the decisions they make will frustrate me or disappoint me or even possibly anger me. And that's okay. And I can be upset at you and I'm going to still love you. And I'm going to tell them that ad nauseum. If they're comfortable with physical affection, it's also a very good idea. Give them hugs. Give them kisses. Again, obviously in an appropriate way. The worst thing we could do, yeah, (laughs) is to, to, you know, be doing that in an inappropriate way. That's not going to protect them.
1: Have you found parents that have abused their kids? And that's why these kids are abusing others.
0: I was involved in one case of a young man who who was sexually abused by his father. He I don't know that he went on to I don't say, I don't, as far as I know, he didn't abuse anyone else. He was acting out though in a lot of ways. He was acting out in a lot of ways. And eventually it was way, way back in the day, working, whatever. It came to light, it was dealt with he is since he's married he has a, he's a kid or more the young man he's he's a professional making a lot of money doing very very well it, it happens if it, it, people people really a lot of people heal some partially um i don't know if even even wholly healed i don't know if that means that there's no ramifications probably not <laughs> it's something that could be with you on some level forever That was the only case of that, of a parent sexually abusing a child. That was the only, I think there was only one that I can think of right now that I was, again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a client. It's very unlikely I would have a client who abuses kids because I don't work with adults that age. And and when it comes to this.
1: And you did say that once, once an abuser reaches a certain age, that it is harder for them to heal.
0: In general, there are many psychiatrists who, who will not give a, a full diagnosis to anyone under the age of 18. I mean, they'll say we're seeing, we're seeing, you know, themes of, we're seeing indications of, <clears throat> and the reason is because a person is really very much in flux, and very much in development until the age, maybe it's 18, 21, 24. It's unclear exactly until what, you know, different theories of development will put different times on it. I don't want to say this is who a person is when they're still very much young and in development. Once a person gets older, it's much more likely that different manners of behavior have become much more deeply ingrained. And that's why it becomes much more difficult. As I said earlier... Is this is' their modus operandi is it something that they happen to have done or that they, they do or this is very much the way they operate if this is the way they operate then we have we have much more of an issue so if a person operates in a manipulative fashion manipulation is very often a very big part two guys that are in a you know institute of higher learning and one is uh, 21 22 and one is you know three four years younger and the older one did a very good job of very subtly <laughs> pulling the younger one in and becoming more and more friendly with him and putting his arm around his shoulder until his hand was in much more problematic places than around his shoulder. (laughs) Thankfully, the younger one, here's the crazy thing. The younger one, the first time it happened, was shocked. Then he was very confused because it kind of felt good, even though it really didn't, but it really did because the body reacts to things in the way that it reacts to things. It's very difficult. I'm saying that the body will enter a state of arousal whether or not our mind wants it to very often. That's where a lot of the confusion will come. The kid asked me, he's like, maybe it's partially my fault because, like, I kind of liked it. And, like, and like, the, a second time he didn't initiate the behavior, but he initiated the conversation, which led to the behavior which things went then a step further. And he's like, wait a minute, no, this is not. And again, thankfully, he was able to realize this is not okay, this is not healthy, which is fantastic. Part of the reason it got to that point is because unfortunately, some people are very good at manipulating other people. Some people are very good at manipulating situations and creating you know, scenarios and, and then slowly, slowly moving farther and farther and farther. And there's some people who are just so good, they can create a situation where the victim is convinced that it all came from them. That That's a real sickness when a person's at that point where they're really that good, if you will, um, or that bad. But th- there's tremendous confusion. That's one of the, again, my specialty is not the victims, but one of, one of the the real challenge when you're dealing with victims is very often I'm working with a young man. Let's not talk about him. Let's talk about people in the past, a, a young man who I worked with in the past who, yeah, he was. it did happen in his past because somebody touched him. And the first time, he didn't like it. And the second time, he didn't like it. And the third time, he didn't like it. And the fourth time, he wasn't so sure. And the fifth time, he wasn't so sure. And then after a while, he became an initiator, even with those same people, because it did, it feels good. At the end of the day, physically, it, it creates a sensation, which is pleasurable. So in the beginning, it was very not pleasurable, but then it's very confusing because it becomes pleasurable. It's, it's, I, I believe this is one of the things that often... We, people deal with rape victims is also sometimes is tremendous confusion. How could I have enjoyed that in any way, shape or form? The answer is not your fault. Your body reacts to things in the way that it does. What we really have to deal with the, the shame it is a huge, huge piece here. So the, again, I mean- Not only the me?
1: shame of the abuser, but the shame of the parents and, you know, people finding out, Yeah. Yes. oh my God, that's a lot.
0: Yes. It's a very, very difficult. It's a very, very difficult. It's, I don't know if I would say this as a dream of mine, but the world has become so much more comfortable with a person saying, I'm a victim. The Me Too movement, maybe I think there's some benefits. I think there might be also, be not every, I don't know if everything about it is great. But what is very good about it is that it's created a situation where a person is able to say, I was hurt and it's not my fault. That's amazing. I'm not 100% sure that this is correct, but I wonder if the world will ever get to that point where a person can say, yeah, when I was 14, when I was 16, when I was 18, I made a terrible decision. And I hurt other people. And I suffered from that decision also, but, but I worked on myself and I'm okay. Like, what can we get to that point where that, where there's no shame with that?
1: Wow. You know, I love that. I think, I, just, I think we're not there, but that would be so powerful.
0: Imagine if a person can give a Ted talk and he can say, you want to know how I know that you could be healed? Cause I was, who's going to have the guts to do that?
1: I certainly have not seen that Ted talk yet, but I'm waiting to see it. Whoa.
0: It would be a very, very powerful thing. And that's at the very least, the first thing, not the first thing, but one of the first things I wanna do when a young man walks into my office is, first of all, we have to realize he victimized himself as well. He hurt himself. I don't want to say that more so than other people, but he he messed himself over, but good, by making the mistakes that he made. Whether he was caught or not, he messed himself over. You know how many people I've had walk into my office five, six, seven, eight years after the last time they've touched anybody, but they've been living with it with horrible guilt ever since. A young man comes into my office and he said, and his sister said to him, I remember what you did to me seven years ago. She's in therapy. It finally came back up. I remember what you did. And he comes in and he's like, I just wanted to bury it, but some of them, some people tell me there wasn't a single day, some say it wasn't a single week, a single month, where it didn't float up to the top of my head. I did What kind of person am I? Will will the world ever be safe around me? There are such hard questions and it's so difficult to live with it. And when I can look at this young man and say, listen, you're not the first, you're not the second, you're not the third person to walk into this office and tell me this, I want you to know you can be okay. I'm talking about people who have been in my office who today Name the profession who are married, who have children, who are, my goal is by the time a young man leaves my office, I will be more confident that he won't do it again and that anyone you know will do it the first time. Now, obviously I can't guarantee anything. Even when a person leaves my office, I could never take full responsibility and say, this won't happen again. I'm not a prophet. This is not something which is in my control. But my goal is to get this young person to the point of awareness of knowledge of himself, of his triggers, of his pain, of, of the way that in the past he lied to himself. I mentioned earlier the word cognitive distortions, When a person basically looks at a situation and says, eh, you know, but I know this is inappropriate, but it's not that bad, right? Right? or she's not going to remember, or she's sleeping, or, or he you know he liked it, or all sorts of lies that people tell themselves. And we all do it in different ways. It's the same thing when I say, one of the things I love about this right now is you can see my head. You can't see the rest of me. So you have no idea when I say that I love cookies. You do not realize how much I love cookies, right? So when I say to myself, eh, 80 pounds overweight, it's not that bad. Yeah. Or I say to myself, it's just 12 cookies. No. Or, you know, the diet starts on Monday, it is Monday, next Monday, you know, we all do it in different ways in our life. Okay, that's part of life. But when we're doing it in a way which is really hurting other people, and then we learn those patterns, and we learn ourselves, and we know, and we know how to take care of ourselves. We learn about purple elephants. We learn about riding the wave of an urge. We only spoke about one thing. Yeah. when we, we learn about the fact that when I when I use my brain in a very intense way, it often leaves me much more tired and much less likely to not have energy. If I exercise, it's going to have a very big impact. A cold shower has a very big impact. There's lots of different things. When a kid comes out, walks into my office not knowing any of this, six months, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months later, he walks out with a list of things he can do when he has an urge with a deep understanding of the pain that he's causing another person and he doesn't want to cause with a deep appreciation for the fact that if he does this again and he gets caught, he's going to spend a lot of time with a lot of people who are not going to be so friendly with him. You know what I'm saying? And they might do to him some of the things that he did to other people. You know what I'm saying? Like, i do not going to do a gentle. you know, all these things can have an impact. And more than anything, when a person realizes I'm a good person, and this just this behavior has nothing to do with me. That's really where we want to be. We will ideally we would be at a point, and this is something that I've I've had the privilege of seeing a number of times, like the story I told you before about the young man and the neighbor said to him, "You're not that same kid," or or a young man who came to me and his sister said to him, "You're not the same guy who did this to me," and I, "You're not the same person." And I've seen it with siblings, I've seen it with cousins, I've seen it with neighbors, I've seen it with friends, I've seen it. You know, I'm saying like pick the relationship. Any, you know, we've, again, as long as it's dealing with a young person, I have never personally dealt with a grandfather who, and this unfortunately happen, a grandfather and a grandchild, you know, it's all, you have to be careful with everybody. Just have to, there have to be clear boundaries, but when a person can look at another person and say, you are not the same person who did this to me. I see it on your face. I see it in the way you, you speak. I see it in the way you carry yourself. That's the goal. If we can reach that, it doesn't happen every time, but if we can reach that, then I think we can be pretty confident that we're in a good place.
1: Is there anything you'd like to ask my dad?
0: I'm guessing he's not I'm guessing he's not a specialist in this area. I'm very curious how your dad how he views his relationship now with his adult children.
1: That's a good one. I like it. All right. This has been super informative and I really appreciate you being so vulnerable and open and getting all of this crazy equipment to come on here and sound Hollywood. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to keep in touch and potentially do a follow-up. This was so cool. Thank you for connecting with me today. And I appreciate you answering all of these amazing questions. So this has been fun. It's
0: it's really a pleasure. And the next time you would like me to sit in front of the bright lights, just let me know and, I'll try to make sure that my barber takes good care of me beforehand. Thank you.
1: Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa.
2: The discussion with Rena and Elia Friedman discussing a very, very important subject, and that is abuse. And the victim is not just the person that's receiving the abuse. But even let's look at the possibility that even the abuser or the perpetrator is also abusing himself as well and taking the wrong path in life. I agree with that to some degree, but the key message here is can communication and education of right and wrong and good moral behavior can that be instilled in people from an early age and if it gets broken or damaged can it be fixed as we go along. Mr. Friedman says to me, what's my background in this area? Well, I've seen thousands of people, worked with thousands and thousands of people, and have seen people that are abusers that have worked for me. They have their own issues of self-confidence, and some of them have been abused themselves. And it's a, a power thing where if someone is showing weakness or showing insecurity, there are people out there all over the world, and it's all age groups, not just where a person is picking on someone who's younger than them. They don't care if it's an old lady on the street. They don't care if it's a man or a woman. Anyone that they can take advantage of and abuse and show that they are more powerful or make themselves feel better by thinking that they're more powerful, they take advantage of people. And to do it in a sexual manner is just devastating because some of these people, when they're taking advantage of it weighs on their mind for years and can really destroy people. Yes. People can be victim and can get over it. And also people that do the abusing, can they be cured? Can they be helped and become different people? I'm sure it's possible, but it's very unlikely. It's very unlikely because they tell themselves stories. They have embedded in them the wrong choices, the wrong attitude, and they think everything around them is just bullshit. So it's very hard to break that. So if you're around people that are negative and you have people that are abusers or bullies and have these problems, very, very hard to break that addiction. Sometimes we know of a person who actually took pictures and like the, the victims are in, in his trophy case. You think that he's sorry? When he's done it on two or three occasions over a 30-year period of time, I don't think so. This is a sickness that's not easy to cure. What I thought
1: was interesting is that he said that it stems from unmet needs
2: and impulse control. I don't believe it. I think it's bullshit. (laughs) I think, unfortunately, where he's right is showing abusive pornography gives people the wrong idea. Certain movies that people see. I mean, you had a guest on your show try to kill himself three different uh, ways from watching it on how people uh, were dying on in the movies. Okay, so the truth of the matter is, is that where he's right is that you have to communicate with your children. You have to have good examples. You have to have a mentor that wants to steer you right and be honest with someone and 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 to have compassion and, and, and enthusiasm to helping people. You want that as your example. And the best way to get that example, obviously, is to have the right kind of communication with your parents. That's your guiding light. When that's missing and that light is out, you get it on the streets, And the streets can be very, very mean. And people that are street people, it's a different level of survival. There's a lot of people are out there that are very smart. And then there's a lot of people out there that are street smart. And it's nice to have a little bit of both where you can make the right choices with your life because just to be hidden or protected, you don't get reality that way either. We're all going to make mistakes as we go along, and there's lots of challenges, and God gives us the right to choose. We've got to learn, sometimes the hard way, to make the right choices. There's a lot of people out there that make the wrong choices, and they get pretty excited about it because it feels good, and they're building up their courage and self-confidence, the wrong way then they get addicted whether it's to drugs or gambling or to taking advantage of people and it makes them feel good because it's centered around themselves and that's why we have to be able to figure out that that's not the winning choice the winning choice is that we can all do better if the people around us are doing better too a lot of people never learn that lesson and to take advantage and hurt other people there's a lot of people that have no conscience whatsoever about hurting or taking advantage of other people so you can't cure that They have to be able to be enlightened and to see a bigger picture by just themselves. And most people don't get it.
1: Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn.